I hope it's hot enough for all of you. I'm trying not to think about the fact that we're planning to go somewhere even hotter. This is uh, just about enough for me, but it's all for the sake of family. <clears throat> sort of. Um, we've come to worship God. Let's just remind ourselves of that. And then let's speak to him and ask him to speak to us. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your promise to lead us and guide us all through this life. You leave us in no doubt that we have a difficult journey. As we heard in one of our readings this morning, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And besides persecution, you tell us to expect trouble in other forms. Our bodies and minds are like jars of clay, so fragile and so easily broken. And yet, even as you tell us we have a difficult journey, you also promise us strength for every trial. You promise your presence with us through every dark valley. And at the end of the journey, you promise an eternal glory that far outweighs every trouble. And so as your people, we ask you to help us this evening in this time that we have Help us to look up and to look ahead. Help us to see and be assured of your watchful care for us. Help us to anticipate the eternal glory ahead of us. And as we turn to your word, will you refresh us, renew our minds, renew our hopes. And we ask this for our own good and for your glory. Amen. 
As we've been looking at the Psalms of Ascent, we've seen how they have this focus on Zion, which is another name for Jerusalem, the city that God had chosen. The New Testament, of course, speaks about a new Jerusalem that we are journeying towards. And our first song uh, picks up on all of that and puts it together as it speaks about uh, Zion City being the place for us. So if you'll stand with me, please, for Christ is mine forevermore. Where I see. Mine forevermore. Christ is mine forevermore. 
Today we come to the last of these Psalms of Ascent, a group of 15 songs used by pilgrims on their way to the festivals of worship in Jerusalem. And what we find in these last three songs is a change of tone. There's a change of emphasis. The previous 12 Psalms of Ascent have certainly had plenty of hope and expectation in them. But along with that, there's been lots about danger and threat and enemies. The songs have mentioned distress. They contain prayers for mercy and salvation. We've heard about attacks and attackers that threaten to swallow the pilgrims alive or sweep them away. We've heard about weeping and tears because of the delayed harvest and because of personal sin. Some of those previous psalms have been sung out of the depths. But in these last three psalms, the dangers and the threats fade away from the picture. Now the focus is taken up with the solid joys and lasting treasures of the kingdom of God. These songs focus on the Lord and his king, the Lord's people, and the goal of the journey. So let's read them, Psalms 132 to 134. Lord, remember David and all his self-denial. He swore an oath to the Lord. He made a vow to the mighty one of Jacob. I will not enter my house or go to my bed. I will allow no sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids till I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling for the mighty one of Jacob. We heard it in Ephrathah. We came upon it in the fields of Ja'ar. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool, saying, Arise, Lord, and come to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. May your priests be clothed with your righteousness. May your faithful people sing for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not reject your anointed one. The Lord swore an oath to David. A sure oath he will not revoke. One of your own descendants I will place on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and the statutes I teach them, then their sons shall sit on your throne forever and ever. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling, saying, This is my resting place forever and ever. Here I will sit enthroned, for I have desired it. I will bless her with abundant provisions. Her poor I will satisfy with food. I will clothe her priests with salvation, and her faithful people shall ever sing for joy. Here I will make a horn grow for David and set up a lamp for my anointed one. I will clothe his enemies with shame, but his head shall be adorned with a radiant crown. How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. It is like precious oil poured on the head running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. It is as if the Jew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion. For there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. Praise the Lord, all you servants of the Lord who minister by night in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands in the sanctuary and praise the Lord. May the Lord bless you from Zion, he who is the maker of heaven and earth. This is God's word. And as we turn first to look at Psalm 132, the thing that immediately stands out to us is the length of it. In terms of verses, Psalm 132 is at least twice as long as any of the other Psalms of Ascent. And the reason for that has got to be the importance of what it deals with. Psalm 132 is all about the Lord and his King, united in purpose. 
Pilgrims need to focus on the togetherness of the Lord and his anointed king. And that's what this psalm sets out for us. The first half deals with the king's commitment to the Lord's reign. And then the second half, we hear about the Lord's commitment to his king's reign. First in verses 1 to 10. The king's commitment to the Lord's reign. Verse 1 tells us the king in mind here is David. David isn't writing this, but verse 1 says, Lord, remember David and all his self-denial. Or we could translate that, all his self-affliction. So this is not just about David going through affliction. The point is that he willingly submitted to those afflictions. What is that referring to? Well, we don't know exactly what age David was when the prophet Samuel anointed him as king, but he was young, the youngest of his brothers, and apparently not yet old enough to join the army along with his brothers. But on direct instructions from God, Samuel anointed this young shepherd boy as king. From then on, David was God's chosen king. He was God's Messiah. But from the moment he was anointed, David's life didn't follow a traditional kingly course. And that's because there was already a king of Israel. His name was Saul. And for the next period of his life, God's anointed king lived not in a palace, but in caves, on the run from Saul. Saul was jealous of David and he was determined to kill him. And what is most striking about David's behavior at that time is the fact that he didn't attack Saul and try to seize the crown. He could have. David very quickly gathered his own private army around him. And on at least two occasions, he found himself just a few feet away from a totally unsuspecting Saul. Once, when Saul was going to the toilet in a cave and didn't know that David was sitting just a bit further back in the darkness of the cave... Another time, David crept into Saul's camp in the night and he took Saul's spear and water jug from beside his head while Saul slept on. So David had golden opportunities to kill Saul and to fast track his own rise to the throne. But instead of taking those opportunities, David chose to live on the run like a common criminal foraging for food and supplies without even a bed of his own to sleep in until the time when God raised him to the throne. David showed tremendous self-denial in order to follow God's course for his life instead of grasping after the crown. And then as king, David dedicated himself to setting up the one place of worship God had promised all the way back in the book of Deuteronomy. It was David who conquered the city of Jerusalem, which had been held by the Jebusites. And then later it was David who brought the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. So here in verse 1, when we hear about David's self-denial, this is self-denial for the sake of the Lord's plans and purposes. He refused to grasp after the throne he submitted to the Lord's plan and he came to the throne through hardship. And then as king, he worked for the honor of the Lord. You can see that in verse 2. He swore an oath to the Lord. He made a vow to the mighty one of Jacob. I will not enter my house or go to my bed. I will allow no sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids till I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling for the mighty one of Jacob. That repeated phrase, the mighty one of Jacob, is a quotation from the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 49. In that passage, Jacob prophesied that a ruler would come from the tribe of Judah, David's tribe. And as he quotes that passage here, David shows an awareness, not just of his own little moment in time, but of the grand sweep of history. The big storyline of God's plans and purposes. And David worked for the fulfillment of those plans and purposes. 
Verses 6 to 9 describe the arrival of the ark in Jerusalem during David's reign. And of course, the ark wasn't just a fancy wooden box. It was the ark of the covenant. And as verse 7 indicates here, it was known also as the footstool of the Lord's throne. It didn't contain God, of course, but it was the place where his presence touched the earth, fulfilling the covenant promise that he would be with his people. And so bringing the ark to Jerusalem brought with it the expectation that's described in verse 9, priests who are clothed with the Lord's righteousness and joy among the Lord's people because they have access to God. His presence is with his people. That's what David worked for. That was the purpose of his self-denial. It was commitment to the Lord's reign. But if we know David's story, we know that ultimately his self-denial was imperfect. That's an understatement. His commitment to the Lord's reign was imperfect. The king who had refused himself the gratification of killing Saul... Later in life, he ended up taking another man's wife for himself and having her husband murdered. And so in verse 10, we hear the prayer, for the sake of your servant David, do not reject your anointed one. In other words, yes, David failed to be the true self-denying king. He failed to show perfect commitment to your reign. But Lord, don't forget what you started to do through David. Don't reject the line of David. Bring the king who will be what David failed to be. And in verses 11 to 18, we have the answer to that prayer. We hear about the Lord's commitment to his king's reign. If you look at those verses again and see how they now answer the first half of the psalm. The Lord swore an oath to David, a sure oath he will not revoke. One of your own descendants I will place on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and the statutes I teach them, then their sons shall sit on your throne forever and ever. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling, saying, this is my resting place forever and ever. Here I will sit enthroned, for I have desired it. I will bless her with abundant provisions. Her poor I will satisfy with food. I will clothe her priests with salvation, and her faithful people shall ever sing for joy. Here I will make a horn grow for David and set up a lamp for my anointed one. I will clothe his enemies with shame, but his head shall be adorned with a radiant crown. Back in verse 2, we heard how David swore an oath to the Lord, but in the end, despite all his early self-denial, David failed to keep his oath. But now here in verse 11, we hear about the Lord's oath to David, a promise recorded in 2 Samuel chapter 7. There God promised an eternal king from David's line, a king who would be perfectly faithful to the Lord. And here God promises, through that king, when he comes, the Lord's reign will be perfectly established forever and ever. Verse 18 says, the enemies of God's king, all of them will be clothed with shame in the end. Their hopes will be disappointed. But the Lord's king, after all of his self-denial, after all the afflictions he will endure, will at last be adorned with a radiant crown. And if we follow this through to the New Testament, we know who this king is, this descendant of David. In the New Testament, we read about the self-denial of Jesus Christ, how for the sake of his Father's honor, the Son of God made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, Born not in a golden crib fit for a king, but in an animal's feeding trough. We read about how as a man, 
Jesus refused to reach out and grasp after the crown, even when his supporters and Satan himself tempted him to seize the crown. Instead, Jesus submitted to the course that had been laid out for him by his Father. And that meant humbling himself even further, becoming, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross, the most shameful death of all. And then, in his own good time, in response to the perfect obedience of Jesus the Son, God the Father exalted him to the eternal throne. And as God's people today, then, we can look to the Lord and his true King united in purpose. We can look to them and we can press on in our own pilgrimage, knowing our God reigns and that in his presence his faithful people shall ever sing for joy. Because if the king's commitment to the Lord and the Lord's commitment to his king, we can press on knowing that we are going to join the Lord and his king in their relationship of perfect harmony and unity. And on our journey, we find refreshment in the presence of our brothers and sisters who are headed for that same destination with us. That's what's described for us in Psalm 133. The Lord's people united on the journey. How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. It is like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down to the color of his robe. It is as if the Jew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion. For there the Lord bestows his blessing even life forevermore. Obviously, pilgrims on their way to Jerusalem are together. They're on the same road. They're traveling to the same place. But what this psalm is celebrating is not the bare fact that they're traveling together. This is about a genuine togetherness as they travel together. You see the difference. People who travel together don't always delight in each other's company. Not every family car ride is a joyful celebration of togetherness. And it can be like that with God's people too. Church families can have the odd cold war going on in their midst. Sometimes even hot hostility. But this psalm invites you and me to pause and consider how refreshing it is to experience unity with our brothers and sisters. We know that our unity is a fact. We are united in Christ. Just as surely as these Old Testament Israelites were united in the covenant God made with Abraham and his descendants. But our unity in Christ can remain just a fact. Or, with perseverance and self-sacrifice and a serious consideration for the needs of others, our unity can grow into more than just a fact. It can begin to become a delightful togetherness that refreshes us. Look again how that refreshment of unity is described in verse 2. It is like precious oil poured on the head, running down in the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. And that may not sound very appealing to us, especially on a hot day. Who wants to be oily and sticky? But the picture here is of the Old Testament priests represented by Aaron, being anointed with special fragrant oil. It was flavored, flavored with cinnamon. It was like a perfume. That anointing oil had a unique recipe given in the book of Exodus, and it was never to be used for anything else. So as the priest experienced that smooth, fragrant oil flowing over him, it was a sign to him of God's acceptance and attention and favor. 
And here in Psalm 133, that warm, satisfying experience is being used to describe the togetherness of God's people. When we move beyond the mere fact that we are united and on a journey together to actually beginning to experience unity, it is a sign to us of God's acceptance, attention, and favor. And that is deeply satisfying. Verse 3 gives us another picture to illustrate the experience of togetherness. It is as if the Jew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion. For much of Israel's history, the country was divided, bitterly divided. North and south were separate with separate kings. But here, the psalm pictures Jew from Mount Hermon in the north falling on Zion. That's Jerusalem in the south. That would be a miracle, of course. And that's the point. True togetherness among God's people is a miracle. When people who are so different move beyond just coexisting and begin to truly love and care for one another. That's something only God can bring about. But that doesn't mean we're not to work at it and be committed to it. And persevere in seeking to develop it. Notice how verse 3 ends. It says, for there the Lord bestows his blessing. Where? Where is the there verse 3 is talking about? It's the situation where God's people are truly together. Truly united on their journey. There God bestows his blessing. So can you see how this togetherness is both God's work and also our responsibility? Only God can unite such different people as us. And for our part, we jolly well better sacrifice and show commitment to develop and maintain unity. The New Testament makes the same point. It tells us you are all one in Christ Jesus. And it tells us to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And when God's work and our commitment come together, the result is uniquely refreshing. It is uniquely good and pleasant when God's people live together in unity. So I encourage you to take a look at the brothers and sisters around you. And ask yourself, since Christ has brought us together, since I am on a journey with these people around me, since at the end of this journey I will spend eternity with these people, what can I do now to develop the togetherness that is so good and pleasant and refreshing? The togetherness which is so pleasing to God that he loves to bestow his blessing on it. Please don't look around and think, I wish he or she'd take our unity more seriously. The question is, what, what can I do? What can you do? What little thing or what big thing that would strengthen our unity? Would it be giving up a grudge against someone? Is there someone here you don't talk to by choice? Maybe someone who's not here. Is there someone you need to forgive? Or to ask for forgiveness? The New Testament says, lack of forgiveness can give Satan the chance to outwit us. Or is there someone you look down on because they haven't done as well as you have? Or is there someone you resent because they seem to have done better than you? In another place, the New Testament says unresolved anger gives the devil a foothold among God's people. 
Satan certainly doesn't want to see the kind of togetherness that's described in Psalm 133. So let's resolve as God's people that we will not give Satan the disunity he's hoping for and working for. This is not about brushing problems under the carpet. That does not bring satisfying togetherness. It just puts lumps in the carpet. Working for unity involves working through disagreements and problems and personality clashes. Being honest about them and then being willing to forgive or to seek forgiveness. Is there something you need to do? And if something sparks off this week or the week after, will you refuse to react the way the devil wants you to react? And instead, will you take that opportunity to work for togetherness with your brothers and sisters in Christ? And as we journey together as pilgrims, will you keep in mind the goal of the journey? unceasing praise. That's what the final psalm in this collection describes for us, Psalm 134. Praise the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, who minister by night in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands in the sanctuary and praise the Lord. May the Lord bless you from Zion, he who is the maker of heaven and earth. As I said, this is not just the last psalm in our group of three. It brings this whole collection to a close. And it describes what the journey has been about all along. This is what the pilgrims have been traveling towards. This is the climax of it all. The state of being lost in wonder, love, and praise. In Jerusalem, it was the priests who ministered in the temple sanctuary. But what did we hear in the previous Psalm 133? We heard that all God's people can experience the bliss of God's priestly anointing. In Psalm 133, the experience of Aaron the priest was applied to all the pilgrims. And in fact, we saw this morning how back in the book of Exodus, God promised that one day his faithful people would be a kingdom of priests. The Levitical priests were a living reminder that the Lord is the inheritance of all his people, not just a few select ones. And today, because of Jesus, the way to God's presence is already open. From his presence, we can now already receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. But then, when our journey is over, we will enter into the full presence of the Lord. We will minister in his presence. In fact, we will bless the Lord. In the NIV, verses 1 and 2 say, praise the Lord. But in verse 3, the same word is used and is translated bless. The Lord bless you. And verses 1 and 2 are saying that our appearance in his presence will bless God. Of course, we cannot possibly bless him in the same way that he blesses us. But we mustn't think the Lord is cold and detached or aloof from the reverence and the worship we bring to him. We do bless him as we acknowledge his greatness and worship him for it. And that is the goal of our journey. We're not traveling to God's presence because we hope to be the center of things. We're traveling towards the day when we can finally give him worship that befits him. As we lift up finally pure hands in praise, not soiled hands. As we offer up adoration from hearts that are finally free from selfishness, free from half-heartedness. Hearts that are cleansed of all their impurities. 
We worship now in anticipation of being able to worship more fully then. In the Old Testament, there were no acts of worship carried out during the night. So when verse 1 mentions blessing the Lord by night, it seems to be looking forward to the time when we will offer Him ceaseless praise. When we finally join the living creatures described in Revelation chapter 4, we're told day and night they never stop saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. One day we will join that ceaseless praise. And in the meantime, verse 3 says, as we journey to our destination with our hope and trust in Jesus our Savior, we journey under God's blessing. And while it is true that in a certain sense we bless Him through our worship, His blessing on us is of a whole different order. As verse 3 says, He is the maker of heaven and earth. He owns heaven and earth and everything in them. He can give us what we really need. He can give us what's best for us. And He does. Even in the midst of difficulties and pain, He loves us. He sustains us. He brings His blessing often through His people as other Christians care for us and support us. And all of that blessing he pours out on us now is just a foretaste of the eternal pleasures waiting at his right hand. So, keep going. Press on. Love your brothers and sisters in Christ. Look to the king who has gone ahead of you. Keep going till the new Jerusalem. And then in the presence of our God, together, we will experience more and fuller joy than we ever dared to hope for. In a moment, we're going to share this meal that looks back to the self-denial of God's Messiah, the sacrifice that won this joy for us. And this meal also points to the eternal celebration of salvation that is still ahead of us. But before we come to the table, our next song speaks about both of those truths. It praises heaven's champion who denied himself in order to clothe his people with righteousness. And it reminds us he will receive never-ending praise from his people in heaven. So let's stand for all my days I will sing the song of gladness.
If you're able to say that Jesus is your beautiful Savior, if you're trusting in Him as your only rescue from God's judgment, if you're committed to living under His authority as your King, then this meal is for you, and I invite you to join us and share it with us. But if that does not describe you, then please let the bread and wine pass you by this evening. This table reminds us of the Lord and His King united in purpose. The Son came to do His Father's will, offering His body and blood for our salvation. And for His part, the Father announced Himself well pleased with His Son. He was an acceptable and effective sacrifice for sin. And so in remembrance of that divine unity that brought about our salvation at the cross, we will share this bread and wine together. First, I'll ask our servers to come and distribute the bread, representing Jesus' body broken for us. And as you're served, if you keep the bread, we'll eat it together as a sign of our unity in Christ once everyone has been served.
How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in the unity Christ won for us at the cross. Let's eat together. The wine represents Jesus' blood poured out for our salvation. And again, as you're served now, the, the servers will bring the wine around and please keep the cup and again we will drink it together. We give thanks for our King, who through his sacrifice has clothed us with salvation. Let's drink together. Our final song celebrates this boundless love that makes us whole. If you'll stand with me, please, for love divine, all loves excelling.
The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Amen.